residential school. I was just eight years old. Gail Kessler. My name is Gennady O'Sullivan of the Klawitsis Nation, originally from Turner Island. You're listening to Window, exploring the legacy of Indian residential schools. My name is Isabel Francis, and uh, my husband was Louis Francis, who died in 1971, and uh, he went to school in Spanish. My husband was up there till he was 16, and his his sister was up there till she was 16. She left two years before he did, and he had a younger sister and a younger brother that also went to school up there. He spoke about the conditions up there, maybe once or twice, but he never wanted to talk about it. Because there were a lot of unpleasant things that were happening to him, he always said, "Don't ever forget how lucky you are that you were raised by your parents." When he came back at 16, he couldn't talk to his father. His father couldn't speak English, and he couldn't speak Mala. So there was no togetherness there. I hear that. The mission of residential schools was to quote unquote kill the Indian in the child.、So、well, I think they、uh, did a pretty good job of that, but to some extent. But I think nobody can do that. I mean, it, it can't be done. Not to make them forget. Look at the First World War, the Second World War. What the Germans and the Japanese did, they couldn't. They couldn't wipe out. The good in the people. His experience up there—would you say it was all bad, or were there? Well, no. He always said there were some good priests up there. I don't mean to condemn every one of them. Just like in any situation, there's always one that pops out that is, is against the rules. The only thing I can't forget is that. How did those people that were in there get away with something like that?、Mm-hmm. One apology doesn't wipe out everything. There are certain things that stand in their mind and that they'll never forget. But that's the way it is now. Ah,、mm-hmm. uh, well, thank you, Grandma. Oh, no problem. I love you. I love you too. You have just heard a window exploring the legacy of Indian residential schools. Both my mother and I attended St. Michael's Residential School in Alert Bay, B.C. This is a part of a larger project called Resonating Reconciliation that engages community radio as a tool to help define what reconciliation is. Resonating Reconciliation is meant to help reconcile all Canadians to this shared history. This is the work of the National Campus and Community Radio Association, the Red Jam Slam Society, and this station. Resonating Reconciliation is also supported by the Indian Residential School Survivor Society and is funded by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. To hear more, go to www.ncra.ca/resonating. You are listening to CITR FM one hundred one point nine.
or on your computer, www.citr.ca. Stay tuned now for The Jazz Show, coming right up with Gavin Walker. Thank you. 
We would like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name is Gavin Walker, and we have some of the very best in jazz music for the next three hours to uh, present to you. And we hope that you can uh, stay with us, uh, at least for most of the show. At 11 o'clock, or shortly thereafter, our jazz feature starts. And that's something we do every week, and that's an important part of the show, in the latter hour of the show. And tonight is a very important album um, in my music history. And also, I think, in the history of tenor saxophonist John Coltrane. And this goes back to the mid-50s, and it's a recording on Prestige. It was actually his second recording under his own name, but it was called, the original title was called John Coltrane with the Red Garland Trio. And of course, the Red Garland Trio comprised of the great Mr. Garland at the piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And of course, uh, that's a rhythm section that Coltrane recorded with many times for Prestige Records during his tenure with that label. And this was the first recording with this rhythm section. So that was the original title, and then it was reissued uh, with a different uh, cover and called Trainin' In. And that's, of course, the title track of the album. Why they did that, I have no idea. But I think the reason for it was that they put um, Coltrane's name uh, in right out front uh, rather than uh, the other thing, which was John Coltrane with the Red Garland Trio. I think because Coltrane by that time was being accepted by the critics. Um, they initially dismissed him as, as a nothing, really. Uh, <laughs> he, he, couldn't, he couldn't buy himself a good review. Um, and some musicians, as a matter of fact, uh, used to... Uh, Coltrane, of course, uh, his first prominent modern jazz gig was with Miles Davis. And, of course, uh, in those early days, people would come up to Miles Davis and say, you know, there's other pl- other tenor players around that are <laughs> way better than this guy. What are you doing with this guy? Anyway, uh, Miles, of course, didn't pay any attention. He knew, what, he knew what was going on, of course. And Coltrane was the perfect uh, tenor saxophonist for Miles. Anyhow, this um, album is important. And it's important. It was important in my development too. And I initially got the album as a gift from a friend of mine who felt that uh, he enjoyed. I, th- this was a high school friend of mine uh, who was into jazz, but uh, he loved the piano work on this album. He loved Red Garland, but I think John Coltrane at the time was a little too much for his ears at the time. And so he turned the album over to me, knowing that I would appreciate it, and knowing that I I liked John Coltrane. Um, and uh, so I got the album as a as a present, and I still have the original vinyl at home. It's all beaten up with the original cover, but I've kept it for sentimental reasons. So that's the jazz feature album this evening, Trainin' In, or John Coltrane with the Red Garland Trio. It's a wonderful album recorded during his tenure with Thelonious Monk. And, of course, his playing was taken to another higher degree that summer of 1957 when Train was part of Monk's Quartet. 
And uh, this album is, uh, I think, one of the first milestones in John Coltrane's career because the critics came around as well. Uh, the doubters, they all came out of the woodwork and said, you know, this this Coltrane fellow's got something going, um, in so many words, of course. And uh, there you go. So that's going to be our jazz feature this evening. So we hope that uh, you can stay around for it. We're going to open with a little cooker this evening uh, to get uh, the show off to a start. This is a, a track that I like a lot, and it features the Hammond organ stylings of Big John Patton, the late, great Big John Patton, with Harold Vick, another departed uh, fellow that uh, left far too young, wonderful tenor saxophone player, was a very good friend of Sonny Rollins, Harold Vick on tenor, and Blue Mitchell on trumpet, who sounds beautifully on this, uh, plays beautifully on this tune, and drummer Ben Dixon. But the real star of this track, aside from the leader himself, Big John Patton, is guitarist Grant Green. He burns on this tune, and this tune reminds me of, of riding uh, in Japan on the bullet train, just moving at, a, at an incredible speed, and um, the tune is appropriately titled Night Flight. So here to open the show, Big John Patton and Company. Thank you. 
Yeah, that was a tune written by Harold Vick, the saxophonist on that day, the tenor saxophonist. And, of course, that was played by the John, Big John Patton Ensemble with Big John at the Hammond organ with uh, Blue Mitchell on trumpet and Harold Vick, the composer of that tune on tenor saxophone, Grant Green on guitar and Ben Dixon on drums. That was from a, a Blue Note album called Old Baby by, of course, the legendary and late Big John Patton. So we opened our show with that. We're going to move now to a session which is always, uh, a lot of people think of this next uh, session, which is uh, comprises three tunes. It's a fairly long set um, as a felonious monk date, and it isn't. This date uh, originally came out on a 10-inch prestige album, and it was um, the leader was Sonny Rollins. And this is Sonny Rollins early in his career, but um, 
his, the improvement from his first recordings in 1951 to this one, which took place in October 25th, 1954. Uh, the improvement is incredible. And, of course, Rollins really on this recording um, was becoming quite a formidable tenor saxophonist. But, of course, he was dealing with a problem that a lot of jazz musicians were dealing with at that time, drug addiction. And he was beginning to, to be extremely unsatisfied with himself and what he had to do. He had already spent some time in, in jail, um, and he was, try- he was making a living playing music, and he was also driving a cab in, in New York. And uh, I remember interviewing Sonny, and I said, how did you get your cab license? Um, because you had already been uh, spent time in jail uh, um, with a drug felony. Um, how did you do that? Because normally uh, they, check you, they check cab drivers out for uh, criminal records, and uh, even in New York City. <laughs> so uh, Rollins told me that, uh, he said, well, he said, I guess um, some of my contacts, being a musician, he, uh, I was meeting different people, and somebody um, actually uh, was able to overcome that little bit of bureaucracy. So I got my taxi license, because I really needed the work, and uh, that kept me going, and, and uh, as well as playing. So um, this was Rollins' last recording session before he went to Chicago, decided that he was going to do something about his life, and he went to Chicago after this um, to get out of the whole New York City environment, uh, which was detrimental to him at the time and, and his addiction, and, uh, and quit. And uh, he booked himself into a cheap hotel and spent 10 days sweating it out, um, uh, withdrawing from drugs. And uh, then he decided to better himself, uh, started eating properly and and going to the gym and this kind of stuff. And he found some uh, hard labor in a warehouse as well, which kept him in shape, lifting stuff and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he he made enough money there to um, rent some studio uh, space so that he could practice his saxophone. And of course, when he came back uh, onto the New York jazz scene in at the tail end of 1955, a year later, uh, the difference in his playing was startling. And of course, uh, Sonny Rollins then was on his way to uh, real jazz stardom and drug-free and uh, never, of course, looked back. And Sonny Rollins is still with us at uh, 83 years old. So, with this in mind, this date actually did come about because of um, the drug culture. And, and I'll explain this before we play the music. The original piano player on here was to be Elmo Hope, who was one of Sonny Rollins' favorite piano players, and mine too. And Elmo, of course, had uh, a similar problem. And about two days before this date was to take place, they had decided on the tunes and and everybody in the band was uh, uh, picked and all that kind of stuff. Sonny got the phone call that Elmo had been busted. And he was heading off to jail. There'd be no Elmo hope on this date. So Sonny Rollins decided to, there were many good piano players in New York that he could have chosen. Horace Silver, Kenny Drew, uh, Freddie Red, uh, Duke Jordan, 
uh, Gilly Coggins, all kinds of good piano players that Sonny could have chose, but uh, he decided to choose his guru, someone that he today called calls his guru, and that was Thelonious Monk. And Monk, of course, agreed because Sonny Rollins was his was Monk's favorite tenor player, and he said, and Monk um, usually didn't work as a sideman even back in the early days, um, for a few reasons. A lot of <laughs> one of the major reasons is that no one would hire him, um, and uh, Monk also usually insisted that they play his own tunes and that kind of thing. So. Um, Anyway, Monk was the ideal sideman on this uh, on this date, as you'll hear, and 22 or so minutes were recorded. Only three tunes, and uh, I think there were about four in the planning stage because it was to be a 10-inch uh, LP, and a 10-inch LP usually had only enough room for about 20 to 25 minutes, and 10-inch um, LPs were the were the going thing at the time before they were phased out. So, with that in mind, and that little story in mind, we're going to hear Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone with Thelonious Monk on piano, um, Tommy Potter on bass, one of the great early bassists in jazz, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And the, the tunes we're going to hear um, are three standard tunes. And they are, uh, we're going to hear a, a tune written by um, Vincent Humans to open. It's called I Want to Be Happy. Then we're going to hear the great um, Jerome Kern tune called The Way You Look Tonight. And there were a couple more tunes planned. Uh, the ballad was going to be, and it is, Vincent Humans' beautiful ballad called More Than You Know. But somehow, this is the sweet tune of the whole session. The band got into it and got caught the mood of this, of this tune, the final tune. And after Sonny Rollins soloed, he, he looked up, realized he had soloed for a long time, and looked up into the control room, and Bob Weinstock was smiling and gave him the signal that just keep the tune going for as long as possible, because that was the sweet spot of the whole date. So, there were only three tunes recorded on the date because the, the ballad, the final tune, uh, took up one side of a 10-inch record. So, with uh, all of that in mind, we're going to hear these tunes. And, of course, this is a Sonny Rollins date. Once again, Sonny Rollins, tenor saxophone, Thelonious Monk on piano, Tommy Potter on bass, Arthur Taylor on drums, and we open with I Want to Be Happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Thank you. 
We heard three tunes, the only three that were recorded on this uh, original 10-inch album for Prestige Records, and was done October 25th, 1954, and featured, of course, the leader, Sonny Rollins, on tenor saxophone, with Thelonious Monk on piano as a sideman, and Tommy Potter on bass, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And the three tunes we heard were all standard tunes, and uh, chosen by Sonny. Um, there were going to be more tunes on the album, but the uh, the final tune uh, filled up um, all of um, the space on a 10-inch LP record. And of course, um, that was really the sweet spot of the whole session and a very heartfelt treatment of that uh, beautiful old ballad. But the tunes we heard, we opened with I Want to Be Happy, written by Vincent Humans, and uh, featuring the whole quartet. And the second tune was called The Way You Look Tonight, written by Jerome Kern. And, of course, the final tune, the ballad, the extended ballad, that's the way to play a ballad in jazz. And um, what a beautiful version of this uh, Vincent Humans tune called More Than You Know. And uh, as I said, that was the sweet spot of the whole recording session. So one of those rare recordings, it was all, it's always been uh, called the Thelonious Monk date, <laughs> um, but it was actually led by a young and still developing Sonny Rollins. And it was his last recording in New York City before he took off to Chicago to straighten himself out and, of course, uh, return and become one of the major voices of the tenor saxophone. So there you go. And you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. We've got a couple of brief messages for you, and we're going to be back with some uh, Dave Brubeck. But this was before uh, Take 5 and all the, all the tunes, Blue Rondo, Ella Turk, and so on. This was when the quartet was um, basically playing standard tunes. And this is Dave Brubeck live in a nightclub, not in front of a college audience, uh, but in a sophisticated New York jazz club uh, in the mid-50s with his band. And the playing is quite different from uh, what you would hear on a lot of Brubeck uh, recordings from this time. So we'll get back to that in just a moment, right after these messages. By the way, this is The Jazz Show, and my name's Gavin Walker. AMS Food Bank. Your access to money during the studies at UBC will most likely be limited, but it is a priority of the AMS Food Bank to ensure your access to food is not. The AMS Food Bank provides emergency food relief seven days a week for all UBC students to volunteer with the Food Bank or for inquiries about how to take advantage of the services provided. Contact them at foodbank at ams.ubc.ca. For more information, find the AMS Food Bank on Facebook or feel free to visit anytime across from the Wellness Center and Sprouts. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. 
For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. Well, as I remember, we missed giving you the weather last week, so we should tell you about last week's weather, <laughs> or maybe not. No, I don't think we're—I don't think we're going to do that. Who cares? <laughs> weather goes by just like life, right? Um, with some memories, of course, but uh, yeah. But the weather this week uh, is going to be pretty good in the middle of the week. Uh, tonight is increasing cloud with a low of nine. Uh, tomorrow is going to be cloudy. Um, most of the day, what no rain, uh, with a low of 9 and a high of 16. And then all of a sudden, on Wednesday, things are going to break out. It's going to be sunny on Wednesday with a low of 9, highs in the city around 19, and inland, uh, 24, damn near the tropics. And Thursday is going to be the same, uh, sunny with a low of 10, highs between 21 and around Vancouver, and 26 inland. So there you go. Um, Then Friday is kind of changing again. It's a mix of sun and cloud with a 40% chance of a shower with a low of 13 and a high of 20. Saturday is cloudy with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 11, high of 17. And Sunday is once again just cloudy with a low of 10 and a high of 18. But uh, note that the temperatures are staying up there, um, even though the clouds roll in on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So there you go. Anyway, that's the weather picture. We're going to uh, take you back in time to uh, the mid-50s in, uh, in New York City with uh, one of the most popular groups ever. That was the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And this is a broadcast recording. We're going to hear the uh, opening with... Um, the announcer um, of his time, uh, introducing Dave and the band. And we're going to then go into some tunes by the Brubeck Quartet, played before um, a New York audience at Basin Street uh, in New York City in February of 1956. And the people involved in the band, of course, Paul Desmond will be with Dave on alto saxophone, one of the most distinctive voices uh, of the alto saxophone, Norman Bates, not the guy in the movie. Uh, <laughs> no, this is Norman Bates, the the bass player, is playing bass. Um, as a matter of fact, there were three Bates brothers, believe it or not, that played with Brubeck, uh, and they were all brothers, and they all played bass. Uh, there was Bill Bates, Bob Bates, and Norman Bates, the bass player here. On drums, uh, a wonderful drummer who was about to retire from the band because he 
Uh, he didn't like the road very much, and he moved, he wanted to just move back to San Francisco and just live in that city. Wonderful drummer, and, and Desmond loved this guy. His name was Joe Dodge, and he was one of the original drummers with the Dave Brubeck Quartet. So that's the personnel. So we take you back to Basin Street in New York City. Uh, the announcer is going to, um, Dave is going to play his uh, famous tune written for Duke Ellington called simply The Duke. And then, uh, which Dave was using as a theme song at the time. Then we're going to go into a, a nice version of Hoagie Carmichael's Stardust. Then we're going to hear another great uh, standard tune called Gone with the Wind. And then uh, an original based on uh, the chord progressions of uh, Gershwin's Lady Be Good called Stompin' for Mealy. And Mealy um, was a very, very famous photographer of, of its time, and he did a whole, uh, um, he did a bunch of uh, album covers for, uh, for, for Brubeck. And um, the final tune is um, a minor key blues uh, written by Paul Desmond, or created by Paul Desmond. There's no real theme on this, but he called it Audrey, because Paul Desmond had an unrequited love affair with actress Audrey Hepburn. And apparently they never met, um, which is kind of strange. But when uh, Audrey Hepburn was interviewed close to her death, she mentioned uh, that she was so flattered that um, a musician of Paul Desmond's stature would name a tune for her. So that was kind of interesting. Um, anyway, that's the final tune of the set. So here then, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, before Take Five and Time Out and all those famous records. Sounded great back then as well, as you'll hear. Here we go. <laughs> Hello, everybody. From Broadway's famed Jazz Cafe, the Basin Street in New York City, we bring you another great transcribed Basin Street Jazz Show starring the Dave Brubeck Quartet with the alto sax of Paul Desmond. Excellent bit of noodling, maestro. Ushering in 25 minutes or thereabouts on the CBS Airways. And although there isn't a great deal of that in the clouds here, our skies in New York City. There are plenty of clouds. We ought to get started with something that everybody remembers and likes your deft touch. Stardust. Thank you. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, broadcast recording by the Dave Brubeck Quartet as they sounded in February of 1956, recorded at Basin Street East in New York City. And, of course, this was, uh, as I said, this was a broadcast recording, so it's not the, the fidelity isn't as high as, say, their studio recordings on Columbia Records. But they present um, a different kind of uh, musical view of the Brubeck Quartet. Uh, most of Brubeck's live recordings were always done before um, college audiences because he was, Brubeck was a pioneer there, and um, his his late wife, who, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, uh, Iola Brubeck, was the one that opened the door um, for Brubeck to play in colleges. Uh, she said, this is an untapped audience. And uh, so um, Brubeck had, had been struggling in the early days, uh, playing in clubs and that sort of thing, and, and, and recording and getting some... Uh, acclaim, but it was when he started to play in the colleges that he turned a whole generation on to um, real jazz music and jazz music, Dave Brubeck style, but it's uncompromising. Um, it's it's pure jazz, and um, Brubeck did this and and became one of the most uh, popular and um, most admired um, jazz groups. And, of course, um, he was featured on the cover of Time magazine and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, the, there were a lot of people that were kind of jealous of Brubeck's success, um, etc. But he had his supporters. Miles Davis was one of them. Charles Mingus was another. Everybody admired Brubeck and, uh, because he was original and um in many ways, his piano playing is just as important and unique as the piano playing of Thelonious Munch and uh, others. And, uh, of course, we heard some wonderful examples of Brubeck's piano playing. And, of course, Paul Desmond. What can you say about Paul? Except superlatives. And uh, the other people involved in the band, besides Brubeck and Desmond, uh, Norman Bates on bass and the wonderful Joe Dodge on drums, who was about to relinquish his position. He was tired of the road and wanted to move back to his hometown of San Francisco. So he quit the band not long after uh, this stuff, and Joe Morello, of course, joined the band. And eventually, Norman Bates was replaced as well. And, of course, the Brubeck Quartet went on with uh, for years with uh, Eugene Wright on bass and Joe Morello on drums and continued right to, right to the end till they uh, broke up officially in 1967, the original quartet. So, anyway, we heard this early quartet. This was before Time Out and all these kind of recordings, and they were playing mostly standard tunes and, and, and uh, uh, interpreting them in their own way. So we opened with uh, the voice of the uh, uh, broadcast host introducing uh, Dave Brubeck and Dave doing his theme, um, a short version of a tune called The Duke, written for Duke Ellington. Then we moved into uh, Hoagie Carmichael's Stardust, uh, we followed that with um, a wonderful old standard called Gone with the Wind. And uh, then an original tune by Dave, uh, based on uh, Gershwin's Lady Be Good, called Stompin' for Millie. And Millie, of course, um, was Gion uh, uh, Millie, the famous uh, photographer. And um, 
So that tune was dedicated to him. And we ended with uh, a minor key uh, blues uh, written by Paul Desmond and entitled Audrey. And the Audrey in question was Audrey Hepburn. And um, as I said, Desmond had an unrequited love affair with Audrey Hepburn. Um, She never met Paul, and Paul never met her, uh, as far as I know. But she did acknowledge, um, shortly before her death, in an interview, that she uh, loved Paul Desmond's playing and so was so honored to have uh, a tune named for her. So there you go. So in her own way, she loved Paul Desmond too. So that was the final tune of the set, Audrey. The Dave Brubeck Quartet, some uh, early recordings. You know, a lot of people uh, don't believe that uh, John Coltrane, who is our jazz feature artist this evening, um, was not only influenced by Stan Getz, they seem to be stylistic opposites, but Coltrane admired Getz probably more than just about any other saxophone player with the exception, say, of Charlie Parker. Um, And Coltrane and Getz uh, became very good friends and uh, supported one another. So, Coltrane was pretty right. I'm going to play you two tunes um, by Stan Getz. This is a a, a recording session that he did in the mid-50s when he was living in California. And it features an all-star band and includes some of the finest uh, Stan Getz playing on records, especially the second piece. Uh, The people involved in the band, uh, Conti Condoli on trumpet, Lou Levy, the Grey Ghost on piano, Leroy Vinegar on bass, and Shelley Mann on drums. And this was recorded actually in 1955, um, in Los Angeles in August. And we're going to hear two tunes. Um, we're going to open with a, and you'll hear how beautifully original Getz is on his interpretation of a tune that everybody's played. Uh, and the tune is called Summertime. The second tune is an old tune from the early 30s, uh, written by Ford Dabney. And it was recorded by Louis Armstrong and a whole bunch of other people. The tune is called Shine. And Many people say that the, uh, Stan Getz's solo on Shine is possibly one of the very best solos he ever played on records. Now, I know for sure, because I, I um, knew Connie Condoli, the trumpet player on here, quite well. And I asked him about this recording session, and, and he said, well, everything went so well and I enjoyed myself uh, and loved to play with Getz and and the rhythm section was was just so great but when we got to shine he said I wanted to throw my trumpet away he said because Getz's solo on that was so incredible he said I was just stared at, at him in total disbelief and I figured like no matter how great I try and play I'll never match this. And, of course, he <laughs> told me, he says, I've listened to the record, and I didn't match it. <laughs> but Connie Condoli sounds pretty good. But it's gets a solo that's unbelievable on the second tune. So 
We go back to this. We're going to hear two tunes from this recording session, Summertime and, of course, the masterpiece, Shine. And here's Stan Getz and company. Thank you. 
That's it. Two tunes by the Stan Getz Quintet from an album called West Coast Jazz because it was recorded in Los Angeles. And uh, everybody, of course, was uh, living in Los Angeles at the time. And we heard two tunes. We heard Gershwin's Summertime was the opener. And then, of course, the amazing uh, old tune called Shine. And the people involved, of course, along with uh, Stan on tenor saxophone, Connie Condoli on trumpet, Lou Levy on piano, Leroy Vinegar on bass, and the great Shelley Mann on drums. And that was a prime Stan Getz. August 1955. Mm-hmm. Last week I played a couple of tracks from an album that won the Juno Award for large jazz ensemble and i'm going to play you one more uh tune which will take us into the jazz feature from this album called habitat and this is the christine jensen jazz orchestra and of course christine is the sister of one of the great contemporary trumpeters ingrid jensen and they were both born in nanaimo british columbia Mm-hmm. Diana Krall was born there, too. But uh, Christine, of course, um, developed her skills on the uh, alto and soprano saxophones and moved to Montreal and, of course, uh, studied at McGill University and um, began writing. And this is one of her first compositions that she ever wrote for a large ensemble, but she reorchestrated this. And um, it's all about... Uh, Rue Saint-Laurent, which, of course, is known in Montreal as the Main. And, of course, it is the, again, it's the street that divides east and west in Montreal. And uh, the English, of course, say um, (laughs) St. Lawrence Boulevard, but it's Rue Saint-Laurent. And, of course, the Main, that's that's what it is. Anyway, uh, it's perhaps Montreal's most important famous strip of diverse street culture. And Montreal is full of street culture. It's great. Um, 
Anyway, uh, enough about Montreal. But this is what the composition is about. And it features a whole bunch of solos on here, including Joel Miller on tenor saxophone, Fraser Hollins on bass, um, Eric Hove on alto saxophone, John Roney on piano, Richard Irwin on drums, and Sister Ingrid on trumpet, Ingrid Jensen. So here then is from this award-winning album, Habitat, the Christine Jensen Jazz Ensemble and Intersection.
Yeah, and it uh, fades out over uh, the trumpet of uh, Sister Ingrid Jensen. That, of course, was the Christine Jensen Jazz Orchestra, comprised of uh, the cream of the crop of um, young Montreal musicians, and led by, of course, and um, all the pieces are composed by Christine. And uh, this album won the Juno Award as um, Best Large Ensemble Jazz Album. This particular piece was dedicated to uh, St. Lawrence, Maine, Rue Saint Laurent in Montreal, and it was called Intersection. And it featured uh, solos by Joel Miller, first on tenor saxophone, Fraser Hollins on bass, Eric Hove on alto saxophone, John Roney on piano, Richard Irwin, of course, the drummer, and uh, the final statement, uh, solo statement, was by Sister Ingrid Jensen. So one more track from this uh, wonderful album by Christine called Habitat. And uh, we'll hear some more from this uh, very fine recording on future shows. But we have to get to the jazz feature. Just like to mention, um, as I always do at this time, before we uh, go into the jazz feature, two great websites to check out because you'll find out all you'll find out all the gigs in town where people are playing. Um, it's both websites are very comprehensive, and I mentioned first the website of Brian Nation, who keeps it all up to date, works hard, and his website for everybody is called VancouverJazz.com, and there's all kinds of links on there. You can spend a lot of time on that website and and move around and check out all the all different. Uh, uh, things, musicians' biographies, gigs, um, even our uh, jazz features are posted on there on Jazz on the Air. And uh, I write one uh, every week about uh, what's happening with the jazz feature on the show. And uh, we'll continue to do that on that particular website. That's VancouverJazz.com. And, of course, the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. There's a lot of um, different people coming to Vancouver. As I mentioned before, um, not only um, Bobby McFerrin, John Schofield, Charles Lloyd, but uh, Christian McBride is coming uh, to the festival uh, this year. He'll be playing, um, I forget the venue that he'll be playing at. But uh, anyway, I'll have a much more complete uh, announcement. The the full schedule will be... uh, uh, coming out on May the 7th. Uh, so there's all kinds of gigs that are happening that uh, I haven't mentioned and I will be mentioning uh, once the uh, schedule comes um, our way, the complete schedule. And uh, we'll be talking more about the Jazz Festival. But meantime, you can go on their website, which is coastaljazz.ca. Check it out. And uh, that's a good website. So only one more thing to tell you about, and that's my buddy Ken Speller. And I always mention Ken um, before we get into the jazz feature. Ken repairs woodwind instruments, saxophones, clarinets, flutes, and um, oboes, bassoons, whatever else uh, you might you might play. But uh, he's an excellent musician himself, plays flute, clarinet, and saxophone extremely well, knows what he's doing, works from home. So he keeps his costs down. And all these instruments, all these woodwind instruments, really need a lot of upkeep uh, over time, especially when you play them. 
they they wear out and uh, things get loose on them and all of a sudden uh, you're not sounding as good as you think you should sound and sometimes it's the instruments not you and uh, this uh, a leak here a pad uh, that needs replacing all that kind of stuff Ken is the man to go to um, and he can also completely overhaul your instrument make it uh, make it perfect um, as perfect as the instrument can be and then it's up to you to strive for your perfection so Ken Speller He's located at 13th and Lonsdale area in North Vancouver, and uh, you can always call him on uh, on his phone, 778-800-1933, 778-800-1933, or you can reach him via the computer, uh, kspeller, K-S-P-E-L-L-E-R, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca, kspeller, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca. He's a good man to know. Amateur, whether you're an amateur uh, professional or um, whatever, there you go. That's uh, that's the man. All right, our jazz feature is a wonderful album. It's kind of a milestone, an early milestone in the career of John Coltrane. When this album came out, even his critics, and he had lots of them, uh, with the exception of Ira Gittler, who is my favorite jazz critic. Ira was one of uh, Coltrane's most fervent supporters and was a real supporter even in his early days when everyone was putting him down. Um, and Coltrane, of course, uh, first was heard. Um, he'd been around for a while, but he was really first heard when he joined Miles Davis's first great quintet. And uh, that's when the critics all came out of uh, from under their rocks and, and, said, uh, and started knocking Coltrane as um, being not very good with a bad sound and all that kind of stuff. Unfair criticism. They took, uh, they did the same thing with Sonny Rollins too. And then all of a sudden with this album, somehow they began coming around and recognizing Coltrane as one of uh, the great forces um, on the tenor saxophone. And Interestingly enough, Coltrane himself had been through uh, a, an evolution. He kicked his drug habit, and at the time of this recording, um, not only did Coltrane kick his drug habit, but he got into a, a practice regimen where he was constantly practicing and, and working on new things. And his playing improved so much uh, during the uh, 1957. It was unbelievable um, how much he got together. And of course, the big thing also with all of this, he joined one of the most important bands in jazz, and that was the Thelonious Monk Quartet for the summer and fall of 1957. And he really developed there. So it was during this time when this recording was made, and it was originally called John Coltrane with the Red Garland Trio. And, of course, this was the trio that he recorded many prestige albums with. And the people involved, uh, Red Garland, of course, who was um, Miles Davis's piano player, Paul Chambers, one of the great bass players of all times, and the wonderful New York drummer, Arthur Taylor. And this was their first time in the recording studio together. And this album, of course, is, an, as I said, is an important milestone. It was recorded in August of 1957. 
There are five tracks on the album, but I love Ira Gittler's notes, uh, which I'll quote uh, before we get into the music. Um, his, no- his notes on the original album start with this, and I quote, Ripping, soaring, hotly pulsing, cooking, wailing, smoking, moving, grooving, cutting, riding, gliding, human-voiced, searching, searing, air-clearing, John Coltrane's tenor saxophone is one of the most exciting sounds to be heard in contemporary jazz. When he is swinging, which is most of the time, he has the power to lift your soul right out of your chair while your body remains seated, though animated. That is Coltrane the musician on the stand. Coltrane the musician off the stand is a humble, genuinely modest, quiet person who has come up through the ranks in the time-tested manner in which musicians use to establish themselves as individual stars. There you go. That's uh, the opening paragraph from uh, Ira Gittler's original notes. And, of course, he, as I said, he was a supporter of John Coltrane. We get to the music right now. And uh, the opening track is called Trainin' In, and it's a blues uh, with an interlude. It's, in other words, 12 12 8 12. And that was invented by Lester Young, that concept. And um, it's used here. I love the introduction of this uh, tune. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I often, uh, Joe Farnsworth, a great drummer who comes to Vancouver um, quite often, uh, he and I greet one another with the, uh, the opening lick of, of this. And this is our way of saying hello. Um, it's just one of those things that we do. <laughs> I thought I'd let you in on that one. Anyway, um, Training In is the first tune. The second tune is kind of a mood piece written by a gentleman who wrote both classical and jazz music. His name is Alonzo Levister, and he wrote this the second tune called Slow Dance. Then another Coltrane original called Bass Blues. And then uh, the ballad of the set is a very beautiful rendition of a great tune called You Leave Me Breathless. And the final tune, written by Irving Berlin, is a tune called Soft Lights and Sweet Music. And it's taken so fast that I defy anyone to try and snap their fingers or pat their feet to it. It's unbelievably fast and uh, totally the opposite of Soft Lights and Sweet Music. This album was given to me by a good friend when I was still in high school. And I still have the original beaten up copy of, of this album and um, he, he told me that he loved the, the, the piano trio Red Garland Chambers and Arthur Taylor but John Coltrane was a little bit too much for, for him at the time so he handed the record to me and I'll never forget um, I'll never forget that and uh, I tra- I, as I said I still have this beaten up copy and I, I treasure it so we get to the music right now John Coltrane with the Red Garland Trio And here we go with Training In. Check out this intro.
Our jazz feature this evening, an album originally titled John Coltrane with the Red Garland Trio. Then it was um, soon to be reissued with the title Trainin' In. And um, same date. And of course it was recorded for Prestige Records. And it was a rhythm section that uh, John Coltrane used um, for many of his prestige recordings. And, of course, uh, Mr. Coltrane on tenor saxophone with Red Garland, the great Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And all of this was recorded at Rudy Van Gelder's studio August 23, 1957. And, of course, this was recorded during John Coltrane's tenure with uh, Thelonious Monk. And, of course, during that time, the summer of 1957, uh, Coltrane's playing um, took some giant steps and uh, improved so much uh, over the summertime. Of course, uh, he he went through a personal crisis early in the year and, and uh, managed to kick his uh, dope habit, uh, get into a practice regimen, and then join Thelonious Monk's group for the next step of his evolution. Then he rejoined uh, Miles Davis after that, and after Miles, of course, went out on his own and became the John Coltrane uh, 